All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Today's guest spent more than 20 years in the helping profession, first as a residential youth care worker, later as an instructor in university. She has a PhD in personality psychology. She was the executive director of the Lieutenant Governor's Round Circle on addiction and mental health in Alberta. And she's currently the executive director of the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies at the University of Alberta. Glynis Lieb has a wonderful perspective on systems and how systems actually need to change and how we can do some of that change work. And so that's the the topic that we're going to dig into today. So if you find yourself in an advocacy role, trying to help with diversity and inclusion efforts in society, you're going to love this episode. She's got some tough love for us all as, as how we can be allies and advocates. So I hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Glynis as much as I did. And a reminder that if you're enjoying these episodes to please subscribe, rate, and review the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. It really does help us have more impact in the world. It was a final straw that um, led to me looking around that led to me, led me to be in this position too. And, and um, I've been in the, you know, kind of that quote unquote progressive quote unquote left, all those things, terms that we use far too generously. Um, and that in that kind of activism world for, you know, for quite some time is where I, you know, where I've fallen in. And, and um, there's been a few, uh, more than a few times that where I've had to take pause because when you're running in crowds of people that see themselves as um, the, either the oppressed or the helpers of the oppressed or both, um, you know, it's really easy to, um, identify yourself that way full stop right and um and there were a number of events but there was one in particular um that was kind of it was a culmination of a few things that had happened uh, in um and i was you know i was assigned through work at to work with a group of folks um who identified themselves um as marginalized or and that um and uh, and so we were working together and I thought we had this, you know, I experienced this incredible mobilization of the people who had participated. And and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't anger. It wasn't resentment. It was anything. It was about, you know, it was all about this personal accountability. If we want to see ourselves represented, um, you know, in the decision making you know, levels of structures, we have to take action. We have to get out there. We have to volunteer for things. We have to participate, all those kinds of things. And it was really like this fired up intense, you know, and I came out of there going, that was amazing. You know, this was amazing. And um, when we reported back to the folks that we were supposed to report back to, keeping in mind, I'm working in a progressive bastion here. um, They lost their collective shit. Lost their shit. And one of them, why? What did they lose their shit over? Well, this is the thing that I had to ponder, right? One of them said, things got so out of control. Why the hell didn't you come get help? You know, to which my response was, so as the only white person in the room, I was supposed to run out and say the colored folk were getting restless. (laughs) You know, like they were getting, you know, what was I supposed to, you know, and I said, and I said, I didn't think there was a problem. So I really, and that really jarred me because. I didn't see a problem. I saw people wanting to participate and wanting representation, but then I started reflecting on it and go, okay, I, I run in a lot of these, you know, kind of a lot of these worlds. There's a lot of, you know, structures that are supposed to be representing people that are marginalized in various ways, you know? Um, and a lot of them have, you know, 
equity representatives on them, for mm-hmm. instance. But in a lot of these instances, in fact, most that I saw, these equity reps um, had no vote, um, sometimes voice, but no vote on decision. So very little decision-making power. And in fact, I'd been told that in one other instance where I was representing a group of LGBTQ folk and I, and um, there was a change being made about um LGBTQ related activities. And so I let the group know all these folks and I was told, well, they don't have decision-making power, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> these are, this is the constituency that this, this action, action is supposed to be for. And you're telling me they don't have decision-making power. Um, and so, you know, so this was what I really, and I, you know, started to, it really shook me. And, um, and I realized like, holy shit, I think that um, those of us who think that we're aware of oppression and I think that we're fighting oppression. I think that we can, if we're not careful, uh, become as dangerous or even more dangerous than the people who are well aware that they're kind of over here on the right and they want to, you know, um, to get rid of whatever, you know, name groups A, B and C here, right? Those people are well aware that they're they're not friends with these folks that um, they're oppressing. But those of us over here who think that we are, you know, kind of we are the martyred people who are helping those who are oppressed um, and we start to identify that way, um, I think it becomes a very comfortable thing. And also, you know, there is that kind of um, what's, you know, paternalistic kind of, you know, um, I'm helping you look at me, but I still have control. So, you know, I can yell and rant and rave and do whatever um, I want to do about how, you know, how certain people deserve voice, deserve to be represented. But if I'm the one doing that yelling and that I'm still controlling how much access they actually get. So then when you have an instance, which is what I think was perceived with this, this event, Mm -hmm. where the folks that, you know, that we're, that we are helping um, suddenly go, Mm, I think I'm going to help myself to this, you know, um, I don't want you doling out the piece of the pie that you think I should have. I think I'm going to go and get my own piece of the pie. And suddenly that's, that's threatening on a bunch of levels because my identity is, uh, is as the, you know, as the person who's helping and you don't need my help anymore, but also now I've lost a bit of control, right? Mm-hmm. Now I might actually have to move over a bit more than I did before to make room for you at the table. And so suddenly it's that, okay, this was all good when I could predict um, what the impact on me was going to be. But now if it suddenly means, you know, that um, it might be more competition or it might be this sort of thing, now I'm not so comfortable anymore. And so that's what I was thinking about, you know, I've been thinking about a lot and I, you know, having this discussion about the the dangers of allyship, if you will. Mm-hmm. And how's that, how's that affected your practice when you think about kind of what you're doing now to mitigate Mm-hmm. Again, against some of that, because, you know, I agree. I think that I've seen lots of instances where helpers, the, the helper identity complex mm-hmm. isn't critically examined and it becomes a part of identity. And then we start to justify paternalistic controlling yeah. behaviors because sure. we're, we're doing it with best, with good intentions. And so yeah. I'm always telling people that, you know, I don't actually care about your intentions. You yeah. know, I, I hope they're good and I assume they're good, but it's your impact. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, how are you actually impacting and are we actually moving the needle? Are we actually making change happen or are we just perpetuating the yeah. status quo? But back to kind of your practice coming mm-hmm. out of the, this, mm-hmm. how, how, how long ago was this? Was this fairly recent or was this, this is, um, you know, within the last 18 months or so. And that's okay. so I came into this role now a year ago, last September. Yeah. And it was really fortuitous because, um, you know, that all this had happened and then somebody had pointed me to this role and it was a newly created role um, running the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies and Services. They hadn't had a formal executive director before. It was run by, it was created by a grad student and a member of the faculty in that. So when I came over here it was shortly after that incident that I told you about and um, the the institute was um, in trouble to put it frankly um, it was struggling with extreme internal disruption and morale issues with allegations of misogyny and racism and all kinds of things um, and just with um, a reputation of, as being elitist isolationist and exclusionary even like within the queer and trans community even. And so I had to spend a lot of time, you know, and I didn't know a lot of this when I'd taken on the role. So I spent a lot of time 
um, learning it the hard way. And, um, you know, and a lot of time talking to people um, who were upset, angry, dismissed, etc. And and that which it which needed to happen. And it was really, really fruitful because it, um, it kind of, it, it was a time when I was already thinking about these sorts of things. And I had to, through taking the time to learn about the history of this institution and where it had been and where we are now, I had to be really humble and listen to people, you know, tell me their experiences and a lot of people because they've been around for almost 15 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, so, and at the same time um, there was kind of a, fissuring um, within the queer and trans community in Edmonton and area, which you're probably aware of, like the Pride Festival was canceled here this year and that. Um, And the interesting thing was I saw um, what was happening when everything ruptured there and saw how similar it was to the experience that I'd had with this group of racialized people and indigenous people. And so you had a group of, um, you know, black indigenous people of color, um, the BIPOC community and um, here and who were challenging the status quo around, you know, around who had access and, and rightly so. Right. And when we sat all the executive directors of all the queer and trans serving organizations down to address this, lo and behold, it was a whole bunch of white people in a room, right. Self-included, right. (laughs) To, To, you know, to the surprise of no one, but, but when folks started saying, you know, um, we want more, you know, more representation. Um, we want events that are targeted at um, the QT BIPOC community. You know, um, we want places on the board that decides these things. And that too, there was, you know, kind of, there was a big rumble. And so to this day now, you know, when seven, eight months later, I'm still hearing people talking about, you know, this idea of being held hostage, hijacking. I heard somebody refer to it as the plague the other day from within the community. And that, and I thought, you know, this is, you know, and they talked about, they called these people terrorists. They call, you know, said they were extortionists. They just wanted money. But this, and, you know, so I was coming on new and I didn't know a lot of the history, but when I was talking to some of the folks from, you know, who had been kind of pointed out as the instigators and that, you know, they were saying, we need to, you know, we need somebody to believe us. We're just asking for space and we're asking and um, a lot and that, and I said, you know what, I can relate to that because, you know, when I get mad about something, you know, I'm morally indignant or whatever it is you see me as being, but if I'm a person of color and I get mad about something, somehow I'm irrational and an instigator and so forth. We see that all the time. I saw that with this group that I was working with, right? They weren't irrational at all. They weren't asking for anything. Um, in fact, less than many of the other equity seeking groups around, but because of who they were, it got perceived as like this, you know, like, you know, kind of irrational, out of control, you know, whatever. And so, so um, that's been a really humbling experience. And so when I came in, especially with the history of this institution too, um, of being, you know, kind of a pretty um, white place to be um, and that, and, it um it really i had it really kept me mindful that i needed to um to ensure that i wasn't making assumptions and ensure that i wasn't just doing things the way that was comfortable for me and that so i continued the conversations with the folks that you know that i had been um I've been attending a lot of anti-oppression training, um, listening to a lot of people speak, listening to the voices, like trying to find the voices of the people we actually serve. And um, with the queer and trans community too, you see similar things to what you see with the indigenous community is the idea that, you know, kind of one voice speaks for all, right? Like this, you know, you can have one indigenous representative and assume you have your indigenous people. Spokesperson, right? right? Yeah. And that, so my one friend who's, who's not indigenous, but is a person of color, Color, or, you know, anytime she gets asked to do anything and, you know, kind of be that equity person, she's like, and on behalf of all colored people, I would like to say, right, because like, oh, check mark, we've got our person of color, right? And the same was happening with, uh, you know, with the queer and trans community, too, because um, for a long time, it's been, you know, you can have certain faces of the community, and those people are very valid, but this idea that they are the whole community, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so Edmonton has had a couple of very, you know, folks who very famously have been kind of the go-to people around the community um, that represent 
a segment of the community and the other folks aren't getting heard from. And the other thing is, you know, when we look back historically, we talk about the great um, progress, you know, that the LGBTQ2S plus community has made in the last 50 years, Stonewall and so forth. And that, but it was, you know, it was people of color and trans people who really instigated the Stonewall riots and other things that were happening around that time. But after that, the people who started kind of really getting a lot of voice were not those people. They tended mm-hmm. to, you know, cis white male, mostly people, right? Yeah. Let's talk that, a little bit about about that and your perspective on, and I'd like to dig into anti-oppression, anti-oppressive mm-hmm. practice as, as well, um, and some of the things that you're learning about mm-hmm. as you as you walk this journey. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been thinking for a while that diversity and equity efforts maybe mm-hmm. in society, let's just call them that, um, and identity politics and some of these things that are really starting to polarize. Mm-hmm. Or we're seeing this like distinct polarization happening mm-hmm. that these conversations aren't actually about, you know, color and they're not about sexual preferences. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's solely about power. And when mm-hmm. you describe the mm-hmm. the implosion of some of these groups that you would expect to be have a pretty united collective mm-hmm. front, when you describe that implosion, all I see is power. I'm like, oh, there's yes. a power dynamic. 110%, 110%. So how do we, mm-hmm. for, from a, maybe let's dig into anti-oppressive practice mm-hmm. a little bit and some of the things that you're thinking about and you're, you're training people mm-hmm. in your organization to think about mm-hmm. what is anti-oppressive practice, maybe at, at a high level, and mm-hmm. what, what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? as a helping profession, like let's aim this maybe at the helping professional uh, who wants to be. Yeah. yeah. And I'll preface this by saying, I'm not an expert and I'm taking this training for this, you know, I've got so much to learn and what, but um, you know, the biggest learning that's been for me so far is to continually like check myself is this. um, And I realize, you know, how comfortable I am speaking and expecting to be heard and expecting to be listened to how comfortable I am walking through doorways and walking down the street. Right. And mm-hmm. thinking about those things and, and being conscious of it and, um, and what, and um, the biggest learning that's come from a lot of very wise people that I've engaged with in this journey about, uh, you know, anti-oppression practices is um, you know, is to ask those, you know, those questions of yourself and to stop and to, um, and to think about, it's not about like denying the privileges that, you know, any one of us may have and that, or saying, you know, well, I had it tough too. Um, you know, it's about owning the fact that, you know, that I have a lot of things going my way and how do I use that? How do I actually use that to help other people? And so I think back to, you know, when I was, when I was first um, introduced into, you know, civil society, because I was, you know, I was raised um, off the grid until I was almost 12 and literally lived on, on an island on the East Coast where we were the only family who lived there year round. I was homeschooled, you know, um, and then I moved into the prairies and had to go to school and survive in civilization and learn things like, you know, um, um, that like you're not supposed to wear the same clothes three days in a row. People make fun of you and the, all those kinds of things, right? But I, I remember being that kind of you know that awkward kid who was incredibly poor, trying to figure out the social nuances and that, and I'm um, incredibly self conscious. And I think at that point in time, if one of the popular kids had said, "Hey, we're having a party after school. Um, you're welcome to come." And left it at that, how likely would I have been to go to that party, right? Mm-hmm. Because my, you know, I don't know what to expect. What if they were making fun of me? What if it's a setup? Why would they want me? There are all those kinds of things. And so now when we say, well, everybody's welcome to apply or everybody's welcome to come to this event, whatever, um, I think about that, like, just because we say people are welcome doesn't mean that they're actually going to walk through these doors. So what, how can I use all the things I have going in my favor to walk through doors with people? And I think, and I look around at the, at the Institute I work for too, um, the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies and Services. We, there's a lot of LGBTQ2S plus serving organizations. Relatively, we have as an institution of massive, massive privilege. We're, you know, we're on the university, we're treated as university staff, we have access to all these facilities and resources. How many other not-for-profits have fund development people that are, you know, (laughs) that are out actively searching for money for them and the organization they're connected to, right? So, so what I've been exploring a lot is, is, you know, how do I, how do I recognize the things that I have that I can 
share with other people? And how do, how do we as an institution as a, and as an institute recognize the things that we have that we can share with other organizations? You know, even simple things, right? Like we have access to space for free all the time right that has uh, tech equipment that some people that you somewhere else you have to pay a grand or 1500 to rent you know in your little organization well why can't you know i can book a room as isthmus for another organization you know for you know for whom that would be the entire budget for the event right and and have it for free those kinds of things so it's it's recognizing what i can share and also recognizing the space i'm taking and um shutting up once in a while um, and stepping back and, and not feeling like I have to be the, you know, if there's silence that I have to jump in and speak. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think those are great points. And, you know, from a right use of power perspective, which is kind of my lens on these types of conversations, it's not about disowning your power. It's not about trying to give it away or pretend you don't have it, which tends sometimes is the kind of default. It's like, well, I just, I'll pretend that I don't have the impact mm -hmm. that I do, right? Yeah. Or like this equal, myth of equality mm -hmm. in society right now. It's like, it's not, we're not actually equal, right? Because we no. don't have the ability to affect change in the same way. Just no. like your organization has more resources, mm -hmm. right? And somebody else acknowledging mm -hmm. that and then you, you using those resources for the best mm -hmm. impact, right? Yeah. That's, that's all we can hope for at the individual practitioner level. And I think at the organizational level yeah. as well as that people have that sense of awareness. And mm -hmm. I really like that metaphor of walking through doors with people, not just like le leaning it open a little bit and like shoving something in, like a shoe in the door saying, Hey, the door's open. Come on in. Why didn't she come? Why didn't she come? <laughs> and then, well, and then because the downstream effect is that we then start to blame people yes. when they don't take us up on those invitations. You know, I've been doing some work in, in elementary schools and I was in one not that long ago, predominantly white, like largely white, um, small town, Alberta. And mm -hmm. there's an indigenous family and mm -hmm. the, the parents would never come to parent teacher interviews. And instead of being curious about why that might be and the long history of indigenous people with our educational institutions mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to create space or like do something different, it was, well, they're just not engaged. They're obviously not engaged in their children's learning. And I'm like, oh, like, yeah, man, yeah seriously? Exactly. And mm -hmm. like, how do, we, how do we move past that and start mm -hmm. to recognize that, mm -hmm. that this isn't about individual people, right? This isn't about them as individuals. It's mm -hmm. about their, 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 how much power they have in any given moment, right? Mm -hmm. So like, instead of seeing somebody's noncompliance or their resistance, like you go back to that, those moments of the, the uprising that you were, mm -hmm. that you were having, right? Mm -hmm. It was really easy for people with power to pathologize the individuals and say they're loud, they're obnoxious, they're, there's some sort of personality, they're an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. Like we'll just shorten up, shorten it up and we'll just throw slap a label on it. Mm -hmm. Right. And to see that happening inside of our helping institutions is really troubling to me. Like that's, okay. that's really hard to like, we yeah. have to have our own house in order, I think, before we can start to engage some of these bigger conversations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the ease with which we fall into the assumption that the way we do things is the right way still, you know, um, it, you know, the more I, you know, kind of the more I think about these things, the more I'm continually aware of it, the more horrifying it is. Um, and that, so we're, so um, we're doing internal trait, um, anti-oppression training within our institute now like looking at our structure and things that we're doing um that may um be barriers for people right that i was, was going to ask you about up. structure because mm -hmm. I, I think that that's one of the things oh, i think that's one of the doors that we need to like mm -hmm. really examine is the structure of our institutions yeah. and our policies and our procedures and like all of those pieces because again it goes back to that at the individual level you do diversity 101 training and the average helping professional is like, check, done, yeah. diversity training, I got this. And I'm not racist or I'm no. not misogynistic, so yeah. I'm obviously not part of the problem. Uh, but then we have institutions that just uphold yeah. these yeah. norms. So and what do you guys, what's some, something practical that you guys have done as a result of anti-oppression Mm -hmm. training or thought it's just that and it goes back to you know i come out of a social psychology background and and um you know one of the deities of social psychology phil zimbardo of stanford prison experiment fame you know he's he was talking he studied the psychology of evil his whole you know for you know 120 years or however long he's been it seems like that long but he's been around for a long time <laughs> but he said that he came you know his theory now has been you know this and for a long time, for decades, he's been saying this, we're always trying to do things on an individual level. And that's so we're trying to address behaviors on an individual level. And um, in fact, another researcher um, had looked at um, the author of the book, Blue Zones. Um, he had looked at this idea of 
the diet industry, for instance, you said, this is, you know, look at the, what a failure this industry is. It's always focusing on you as an individual. And this is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's largely a failure, right? Insert self-help. I'm tackling yeah, self-help but right this now. Idea it's that, the same yeah, that you have to yeah. find the, you know, the broken or the suffering or that, or the, or the racist individuals, and you have to address them with training. But like you said, you know, I can take all the anti-oppression 101 that I want. If I'm going back to work for a system that is inherently inequitable in how it works, which most of ours are, all of ours are, um, then I'm just, I'm falling back, even if I myself might want, you know, and care about people, you know, um, diverse folks, I'm doing things that, um, that systemically discriminate against people. And I've seen, I mean, I studied the relationship between members of the public and systems in, in, uh, you know, as as graduate work, because I had, um, I had started out working in social services as an undergrad and saw what we were doing to people, right? And so, you know, you, you have these examples, so many examples of ways that our systems are inherently inequitable. And until we address that, until there's widespread systemic change, um, we're not going to exist in a world that is equal access for all. And this, you know, as many of us well-meaning people it can be there as you want until we address the fact, you know, even like, even quickly, like the health system, for example, the fact that we have, you know, we divide mental health from physical health and your physical health care is covered and mental health services you have to pay for um, that creates inequity. It create it perpetuates stigma, all those things that are never going to change until that system changes. Right. And there's so many other examples of things that we're doing. I mean, we can get into social services and children's services and the legal system and all this, you know, we could go on for days. Right. But the bottom, Bottom line is things aren't equitable. They're not equal for everybody living in Canada. We know that. And, um, you know, and folks, you know, that look like you and me get benefit a lot more from the systems, right? Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing is that we can talk to our blue in the face about mm-hmm. the issues, but until we actually look at the institutions and the structures and commit so I'm like, and actually changing it. And the people that have the keys to the system are the people who benefit from it. And so, yeah. you know, this, this oppression and marginalization is actually, you know, part of, it's just the status quo and we benefit from mm-hmm. it. And so how do we dismantle or rebuild or transform? I don't mm-hmm. love the word transform, transformation. It's used a yeah. lot these days. Yeah. Um, but how do we tackle some of these inherent, you know, biases and built-in oppression? in our institutions or where have you seen some success even on a small level or a practical level with organizations that you've been engaged with? Um, Mm. What are some of the things that that we can do? Um, Because sometimes in the face of the system, Mm -hmm. the individual practitioner or the leader just throws their hands up in the air and says, well, I can't do anything. Right. And we start to get this. And I mean, the the root of burnout, what you're describing there as suddenly recognizing that you're part of a a system of oppression, you know, that realization drove me out of frontline addictions care. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, we're not doing what we say we're doing. So why are we doing it? Like, why yeah. are we continuing to throw money at youth in addictions treatment? Mm-hmm. Right. I love them all as individuals, but why aren't we figuring out what like, and it mm-hmm. sounds like you had a similar experience where it's like, my values are incongruent now mm-hmm. with the system that I'm a part of. And so there's that real tangible impact mm-hmm. on frontline staff right? Mm-hmm. or direct service people is that when we've like, I think that's actually the root of a lot of burnout. Yeah. Right. It's not that there's compassion fatigue is not a real thing, right? Being fatigued is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But, and what's making us so tired is having to battle the systems that are mm-hmm. supposed to support us. Right. Like that's what, that's what burnt me out. Um, when I, when I experienced it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a bit of a ramble, but no, you're allowed to ramble. Yeah. It's my podcast, <laughs> right? I can, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a hard, yeah, hard question. And I don't have the magic answer, but I think, you know, I think back to like when I was working for social services, I thought, great, I get to help people. Right. And then I realized like the only thing that kept me functional at all um, was to try to figure out creative ways to work around policy and procedure to help people because, um, you know, the, any system serving people that treats people as one size fits all is going to fail ultimately, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have inflexibility to work with human beings because we're all different, even if, you know, we're there for the, what seems like the same need. And so, you know, so I thought, okay, so this isn't the way to affect change. How am I actually going to make things better? Maybe, maybe moving up 
in, you know, at the department. And then I got, you know, I got an opportunity to do system process re-engineering and work for head office. And I realized that people forget the realities of frontline work about three and a half minutes after they leave the front line and become one of those kind of cogs in the <laughs> bureaucratic machine where they're like, you know, where it's like, where it's jargon and buzzwords and this and that, and nothing's actually translating to what people need. And so I thought, okay, this isn't it. Maybe it's being elected. Maybe it's an elected official, right? <laughs> and then I got involved with politics and saw how quickly people have to sell their souls to toe the party line and party politics and that and thought, holy shit. And as soon as you get into party, you know, as soon as you get elected, you have to try to keep everybody happy. And, you know, and so you end up kind of becoming more, you know, kind of, you know, soggy and safe middle safe middle and that no matter what and i thought so where that you know where is it and um and that and i'm and i'm a real big fan of of groups of people getting together to try to affect change because i think as soon as you formalize yourself and become an organization whether it's you know i don't know a not-for-profit, whatever it is, as soon as you have bylaws and this and you're trying to find, then all of a sudden you get caught up in that structure again and that hierarchy. You know, I'm part of a group of people and, and a group of women and women, if people who identify as women now um, that we just get together and we organize International Women's Day events and take back the night. And it's just a group of whoever wants to be there. And we've, you know, intentionally not, you know, not formalized things, not assigned somebody to the role of chair, not done any of this kind of stuff because, you know, it's, it's whoever wants to be involved and whoever, and everybody gets voice and that sort of thing too. And I think that, you know, these are the, these are the ways that we're going to see change. I really am encouraged by, by youth right now. I think that, um, you know, they know collective action is the way um, to affect change and, the reality is no system is going to change um, while it is not financially or, you know, or publicly beneficial for them to do so. We can show all the research, you know, I mean, for decades, we've been showing research, you know, that shows that, you know, getting, you know, getting tougher on crime doesn't actually work longer prison sentence doesn't actually work. If you put money into early education, money into public health care, that has a far more effect on reducing involvement with justice system, social service, health system, than pumping money into more money into policing and whatever. But at the end of the day, if I'm a politician trying to get votes and I tell you that I'm going to pump money into public health care, you're less, and we know I've been, I've done polling. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make votes saying I'm, we're going to, you know, add more police officers and get tough on crime does. Yeah. And so, you know, so until we get to that point where systems are willing to take a short term financial hit to do to do the right thing or politicians are willing to take a risk to do the right thing. Um we need the mass action. We need the people like we saw with the climate march. We need the people mm-hmm. coming off the streets. But the part of the other part of that that people like I, we tend to forget too, and it's kind of that bell let's talk day syndrome and not to dispel or anything, but it's like one day we get together and raise hell about something and then we're like, oh, made our point. Glad yeah. we did that. Let's do it again next year. Same time. Yeah, exactly. same place. And so none of the, you know, kind of, so none of these people are going to have to hear from us for another year. And all the people who kind of felt themselves represented there too, what do they do in that interim? And so, and we, again, we know that big action with no follow-up and connection are completely ineffective or they have the opposite from the intended effect, right? Yeah, they're a detour, right? Yeah. And so there needs to be that continual effort put into these things. And, um, and it needs to be from, you know, from members of the public. And this is where, again, education is, you know, key and, and the need for critical thought is so key. And it's interesting now, because I've seen, you know, when I first moved to this province, I said, you know, there was there was a war on critical thought in this province. And, and now that we've switched governments, all of a sudden, I'm seeing these billboards talking about, you know, um, fighting the stigma on the trades and why going into the trades are great. And the trades are great and working in the trades are great. But that's not a coincidence because when you're learning a particular skill, you're learning that skill, you're learning how to do those things. You're not learning how to think critically about the world around you. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. We need people having opportunities for dialogue and questioning these things. We need, you know, um, we need to be inviting those um, um, those scenarios. And I always say too, and this is, you know, kind of where you know, to go into my, you know, far left socialist side is that we keep, we keep also believing that the people that we elect, that we appoint um, are then the bosses of us. 
we forget that we mm-hmm. the people are the bosses. We can make the change if we don't like what government's doing change it um we can speak with who we vote for how we you know those kinds of things are where we put our money in that so um we need to remember that it's actually like at the citizenry it's our responsibility to speak up and change what we don't like and unless we put continual pressure on any system any institution they're not going to change yeah i've been thinking a lot lately about system change because (laughs) i'm involved at that you know actually i've stopped doing a lot of direct service provider training and and moving you know i'll do it but it has to be paired with leadership coaching and it should be paired with some sort of like meaningful change effort in the organization because just putting more burden on the people doing the work to do the work better in a system that's inherently not designed for that or actively Mm -hmm. works against it i've been thinking a lot about incentives and consequences all right the most basic level like what what's the incentive to to innovate or what's the incentive to include a marginalized community and if there isn't one and there's a distinct consequence then we're never going to see change right Absolutely. and so Absolutely. what how do, how do you think about incentives and consequences and outside of like a financial territory we could obviously talk about like the carbon tax is a great example of you know an incentive and a consequence for behavior and it's yeah. been shown mathematically nobel prizes mm-hmm. have been won and mm-hmm. yet we still toss it out as soon as we get into power that's you know mm-hmm. topic for another day but yeah. Incentives and consequences in the, in these types of marginalized communities, right? Mm-hmm. How do we think about it as systems? Like, what is the incentive to change and be more inclusive? Exactly. Like, why, why would someone want to? Yeah, and it's a you know, and it's a it's a great question. And, and of course, we've been. I just came out of a conversation, you know, a presentation where we were talking about just that because it's Orange Shirt Day, right, mm-hmm. on campus here, and and that. So. Um, I was at a lunch hour talk and um, we were having this discussion in particular, of course, related to the, to social services and child welfare system. And, and they're saying, you know, we have been doing things for, for a certain way for so long, you know, the child welfare system is based on this perception of, you know, of certain people, particularly indigenous people, um, you know, needing to be rescued, needing guiding, being less than all those kinds of things. It was, it was built based on, you know, prejudice and that. So it's inherently um, extra punitive and that, but they're saying now we have these systems where you have thousands and thousands of people um, who have been indoctrined to think a certain way, but also whose livelihood depends on that, mm-hmm. you know, on that system continuing to exist. Right. If we suddenly say, um, no, our priority is going to be providing, you know, all the money we've been putting into um, to the to the people that, you know, that apprehend kids that, you know, that foster them, etc. If we put we're going to put that money into keeping the kids at home and providing supports in the home. Right. Which is, you know, the thing that, you know, really, you know, really the direction we should be going. But what's you know what does that do to a system right and i i mean having worked in government too i saw how resistant structures are to changing an application form mm-hmm. let alone change <laughs> the whole way they think about what they do right and um you know when you're when you're fighting against you know decades and decades and decades of things being done a certain way or longer um and people who are very invested in believing that what they're doing is the right thing because then they have to question, you know, themselves, et cetera. Right. That's a big thing to fight against. And so um, it's, it's a really hard, you know, hard thing. And I don't know if I've wrapped my head around this idea of what's it going to take to, um, to motivate people. We know that the only way to truly change attitude is through direct positive exposure. Right. And um, through, and so, you know, the humanizing of people that your work mm-hmm. acting. Um, I saw in social services how quickly assigning, just like in the justice system, we assign people a case number and they're referred to by their case number, right? And when someone's referred to by their case number, um, you can leave their telephone call unanswered at three o'clock on a Friday and say, I'll get to that on Monday, mm-hmm. right? Even if that person's a mom with two kids, who's just been evicted, you know? Um, and that's so again, it's, you know, that incentives for, um, we have to really think about kind of on a broader scheme, like what is, you know, what is keeping things working the way they are in spite of the knowledge, 
you know, what's the fear? Who benefits from oppressive yeah, practice? What's the benefits, right? right? Yeah. And um, think about, and I think we have to think about this on a much more broad scale again than just individually. Kind of, what's the incentive for me, right? Um, because um, that's what's going to prevent things from changing. Is that you know, is that high the high level incentives to keep things um, where they're at? And um, it's scary because I don't know exactly what it will take to change things on, on this level, right? Like what does it take um, to make it, you know, make an entire system go, okay, you know, um, what we've been doing is completely wrong and we need to, you know, um, we need to stop right now. And I, and today the talk I was at Muriel Stanley, Ben was there and, and um, she's a well-known elder. And she said, you know, what we should be doing is saying effective right now, moratorium on child apprehensions. We're doing this instead, right? That is the right thing to do. We know it's the thing that's going to um, help bring about, um, you know, um, healing, et cetera, in the long term, and provide those supports. But so many people have so much invested in not doing that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a wicked problem, right? It's one of those um, we've built systems to support a certain worldview and a certain yeah. paradigm, and without challenging the worldview or the paradigm, then changing the system actually doesn't make any sense. Like it's just changing the paint, right? If it's still the same mindset, and I actually found a fair bit of success with language shifts yes. and like being really, really intentional about the language that we use. And you, you mentioned, you know, case case numbers, mm-hmm. right? We actually stopped doing case planning. It's like, mm-hmm. we're, you're not a case, you're a person. Yes. We're going to call this personal planning because you yes. are a person, right? Exactly. So even just little practice, subtle language shifts start to perpetuate a worldview that, that aligns with your values. And I think that that's maybe where I've seen the most success at, at least holding systems a bit more accountable mm-hmm. is to get them to really clearly identify and clarify what their values are. Mm-hmm. And then just pointing out gently and compassionately every time their behavior or their incentive structure or something is misaligned with that value. Yeah. So you say, stu- you say student-centered, right? Tell me how that was student-centered. Tell me how that practice is student-centered. And mm-hmm. there's lots of awkward silence that's tempting mm-hmm. to fill, right? But when you, when you, when you do that, you, get, you force people into that conversation to, to rec- try and reconcile the discrepancies yeah. because otherwise it's just, well, that's just the way we do things, right? That's just... Yeah you know or whatever but to get actually get people to say actually that is kind of paternalistic okay yeah. cool let's what can we do instead what might yeah. that look like all right so I don't, I don't know but i think language i think structure um mm-hmm. and i think it all comes down to, to values all right mm-hmm. i think that that's the shared territory and mm-hmm. most conflict that i see inside inside of systems is just either incongruent values with practice or values that haven't been clearly like articulated and so we'll say something mm-hmm. like client-centered and then practice totally differently oh yeah i know we have my other job we're fighting the student success center which is actually um you know reverting to a call center um Um, you know too but i think that the other thing roy is fighting too is this idea you know our human beings innate desire for mastery this idea to be able you know this desire to make sense of the world and um you know, and so it's really easy for people to fall into patterns of behavior that support this idea of, okay, um, you know, this, you know, I can, I can categorize myself as a good person because I do this and, you know, and this person is a bad person because they do this. And, you know, and so much of what we're talking about and, you know, and changing the systems means that you're seeing people as complex beings, not just as, um, you know, as, quote unquote, an addict or a homeless person Mm -hmm. or an inmate or an indigenous person, you're seeing them as complex beings with so many layers to who they are. And um, that means that, you know, um, the offender might also be the victim, right? And, you know, those kinds of things. And so and good people might also do, you know, things that we think are bad and, you know, for various different reasons. And it's and it takes a lot of intentional thought and a lot of mental effort to wrap your head around these things, right? And, um, and that so and to go okay you know um sometimes you know i have like good things don't happen to good people sometimes they happen to people who've been pretty terrible sometimes pretty amazing people suffer right and um and that and that makes us feel really uncomfortable and and we say all learning happens in places of discomfort and i think that you know we have to get used to being in a place of discomfort that means being a little bit um 
vulnerable in our, in our willingness to um, admit that things don't always make sense, but also our willingness to share some of the power that we have. And I think that's, you know, when you're, you're like now when you're getting the folks, it was really interesting. I was at um, a workshop about a year ago or so in there and they're talking about um, um, social location, you know, kind of where you see yourself in the world and, you know, what are your considerations, how much power, you know, all those things do you think you have in various, you know, various aspects of your life, you know, race, gender, et cetera. And what's the aspect or the demographic that you feel the most vulnerable in or challenged in, right? And a whole pile of cisgendered straight white men went and piled under the race one. Hmm. I feel like that's where they were, you know, struggled the most or where they're having the most, are the most vulnerable, having the most difficulty. This perception that kind of they are losing out because nobody's any sympathy for the straight white man right now, right? And because um, we've been so marginalized and oppressed. Yeah, well, exactly. We obviously need exactly to, now, uh, you know, and this and the, the perception that you can't get jobs, you can't get this, you can't, you know, those kinds of things. That's bullshit. And that's, and, well, it is. I mean, Such we look bullshit. at who's still getting the jobs, right? Especially the ones, you know. And Who no, are we electing as politicians? You're not getting the jobs in Tim Hortons making minimum wage. You're getting the CEO jobs. But, you know, but hey. Um, but, you know, so that's the kind of, you know, but this is the kind of thing that, you know, what people feel. First of all, like the, and I saw this with the, kind of the, you know, the implosion within the LGBTQ plus, um, plus community here this spring too. People immediately got defensive, right? Mm-hmm. With that, they lashed out. And this is, we talked about identity politics and people kind of identifying and targeting each other and those kinds of things. I mean, we know what that does. That just keeps the power with the people who have a ton of it. Because those of us fighting to try to climb and get a bit of it um, get so distracted by each other, mm-hmm. right? We have that, you know, kind of the, you know, the 0.1% up there who still have it, Um and financially, socially, all those things. And we're fighting it out and not focusing on kind of the real, you know, real source of inequity, what's feeding these things. Right. And that, but, um, and again, it's all about our desire to feel like we can make sense of the world. Right. And, um, and that, and who's to blame, you know, what's to blame, who's to blame for suffering and injustice. And, um, and it's so easy to to point to, especially when people are feeling uncomfortable because things have, have switched and they're not sure, you know. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, we've seen that in the last few years of the rise of populism here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, maybe one of the one of the challenges or a question I'll pose to you is how do you how do we move these conversations away from identity inside of you like the, at the individual level because that's where they tend to default to yeah. seemingly yeah. and not have to go all the way to tearing down capitalism as the <laughs> as the structure in which we've decided to build our society yeah. under because those like neither end of those mm-hmm. spectrums is particularly helpful um you know at the one end we just pathologize individuals and say yeah or they feel pathologized and so they lash out or you know even my reaction to cisgendered white men and their their fears around being a cisgendered white man my initial reaction to that is like well that's bullshit because there's more ceos named john than there are women ceos in north america so like yeah we're, we're not exactly marginalized um but that you know because that's that's a piece that's that identity piece strikes so so hard um yeah. and so part of part of my work is helping people understand the different types of power yes. because personal power is the one that we identify the most with it's the power that we carry from one moment to the next it follows us around. It's portable. Role power is where we land in a hierarchy, right? Yeah. And it's the role that we have. But, you know, when we hang up this call, I'm not going to be podcast interviewer anymore. That role is going to, I can walk out of that role. So we can walk in and out, but often yeah. becomes our identity, right? Especially as helping professionals. It's like, yeah. I'm Jeff, but I'm also a helping professional, right? Yes. And we those two get really kind of really enmeshed with each other, our sense of identity and, and what we do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, The other types of power, one is status power, which we've kind of touched on, right? Which is a lot of the work that you're engaged in is how to understand status and membership in different groups. And what does that mean for a sense of power? And then collective power, which is really what we're talking about when when we're talking about this like mobilization of people who are marginalized and oppressed. It's not going to happen at the individual level. And 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 they don't have the role power. Mm-hmm. They don't have the status power. So either they have to be tremendously powerful individuals, Martin Luther King, right? Yeah. They have to be able to stand up and give a yeah. powerful speech to mobilize people, right? Or we need to figure out how to, how to, how to collect 
ourselves and to mobilize those resources, which is really kind of what you were alluding to with this group of women where you've intentionally not built the power structures and hierarchies in and chosen to just look at collective Mm -hmm. kind of power. So thoughts on any of that or um, what else is happening? What are you, what are you working on? Well, I think that, I mean, I think that you've said it probably more eloquently than I ever could, but I think that's exactly what we have to um, do is this, you know, get is um, to continually uh, redirect conversations that are veering towards identity politics, um, towards, um, you know, common experiences, common goals, common, you know, common threats. Like, what is it? What is it that we're, you know, so you and I are talking about the fact that, you know, I'm experiencing life, uh, you know, as X, Y, Z, you're experiencing life as ABC, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, you don't understand me or, you know, those kinds of things. Right. But what is, you know, what is it that you and I both want, right? What are our goals? What are we fighting for? What do we feel threatened by? There's lots of commonalities there. And I think that, you know, this um, continually redirecting the conversation to what is it that brings us into this room at the same time? Um, What is it that um, we're both, you know, we're both worried about or we're both fighting for at the same time? Why are we both at the climate march? You know, why are we both, you know, those kinds of things, right? Um, what What are our common goals? And, and this idea that, yeah, we can, we can, get them together and um you know and that's and that is a conversation that i think um has gotten historically so often lost because people did get kind of you know people get pitted on each other are lost in identity politics or scapegoated etc because you know it's easier to um scapegoat um if you are kind of the one you know if you're the one benefiting from where where things are then to try to share or change and that so you know so if if the more again the more that we can kind of redirect this conversation keep coming back to that you know okay you know what are we all fighting for here what are we all trying to get and and who is it, you know, or where is it like that we need to, to go to, to get these things, what, um, and that, and, um, you know, those are the conversations that we need to be having and it's hard to do because, um, and again, because we get threatened or we don't feel like we understand each other enough or, you know, those sorts of things, or we genuinely don't. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting for me in this year that I've been in this role to continually um, just reach out when, some, you know, anytime somebody said that, you know, this person is angry or this group is angry at us or at, you know, issues or whatever, reach out and say, you know, um, I want to hear it from, you know, I want to talk to you. I want you to tell me um, and that and continually having those conversations and recognizing again, how much um, we have in common and how often, uh, you know, our anger, you know, my anger gets directed at you because you're the person in front of me. I see that represents the thing that I see as blocking me or what have you, but our anger is never with each other. It's about, you know, what it is that we see, we represent for each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And that we're afraid of. Yeah. And it's too easy to get, you know, to get stopped by that and go, you can't, you know, kind of, and just go stop where, you know, you, you know, seeing, you know, seeing you makes me mad because I think you have this and I want it. And, Mm -hmm. um, or you represent an institution, you know, um, we have these conversations about law enforcement all the time too, within this community and that too, because there's great fissures in the community around law enforcement and those who believe, you know, in inclusion of law enforcement, those who believe they should be excluded and that too. And, and, um, you know, so having these, you know, having these conversations about again, and I've, you know, I said this a lot of times, you we need to focus on, we need to understand where systems of law enforcement came from. And understand how, you know, <laughs> they came to protect certain interests. That's why, you know, so inherently they're kind of, you know, <laughs> they're, they're kind of screwed up. But, um, but there's these incredible, but there's incredible people on both sides of things. And that's, you know, understanding why people think they're getting involved. You know, mm-hmm. why, why is an eight-year-old and 10-year-old want to be a, um, a law enforcement officer versus mm-hmm. what the system actually is, right? Yeah. And and having those conversations too about, you know, that person goes into policing for the same reason, you know, I might become the member of an anti-fascist movement or whatever. They think they're going to fight injustice and fight the bad guys and save the good guys. That's what we tell them. That's what media tells them, right? Mm-hmm. The moralization, right? It's yeah. the good or bad. Yeah. And, and as misled as that can be, you can't 
you know, it's not about, you can't fault someone for being misled by, by a system. You know, again, we have to look at, okay, who's controlling the messaging around these systems, who benefits from the systems, right? Mm -hmm. And we're often fighting, you know, with each other, uh, a whole bunch of people who don't benefit from the systems or fight and don't have fighting each other. Fighting yeah. each other. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. Cause I think that, you know, sometimes we jump too quickly to wanting resolution or wanting transformation or wanting the change to happen when the the missing step is is that alignment is that understanding yes. is that search for for connection and yeah. connection around some some sort of shared something vision mm -hmm. or values or you know some something that we can agree at the most basic human level that mm -hmm. yes you want security i also want security let's talk yeah. about that as yeah. opposed to talking about our identity or talking about exactly. x exactly. y or z and this wonderful um cree woman who um, works on campus here uh, t talks about this idea of you know um the only time we are free to actually learn is when is when we accept that we know nothing right and i always think that back you know take that back you know engage in every situation like you know nothing don't make assumptions that you know what the source of your problem is or that um that you have you know my idea of what i think is going to solve my problem is necessarily the ac necessarily the accurate one right mm -hmm. Yeah, my friend Steve, uh, he calls it the billion dollar question. And it's, what do I know about this? And this can be whatever this is yeah. from their perspective. Yeah. And it's, whenever I ask myself that question, I'm like, oh, I actually don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything. I know zero. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe exactly. I should just shut up and be curious right? Yeah, right? or ask some questions right. and, you know, seek, yeah. seek to understand yeah. um, okay instead of fix. Yeah. yeah. And again, that goes against that desire for mastery too. this idea to be okay with not knowing the answer. Well, certainty, right? Because certainty feels safe, right? And so there's, like we're talking, we, yes. yeah. you don't have to peel the onion too far before you get down to some pretty core mm -hmm. kind of human needs around, around vulnerability. And so interesting that, that you're, you know, a lot of your anti-oppressive training and practice and what you guys are doing internally is just around, is, is around vulnerability. Oh yeah. Um, because I think that, you know, without that um you know i don't think connection happens in a meaningful way without no. that and it's so easy for people in power to be invulnerable not intentionally but just mm. accidentally right and just mm -hmm. because of the nature of power and how it how it shows up so mm -hmm. well fascinating i don't yeah. want to keep you too long i've had you for like an hour already and i know you've got lots of important work to do <laughs> and so is there anything resource wise or things that listeners should check out if they want to learn a bit more about anything that we've talked about or any of the work that you're doing with uh, with the LGBTQ2S plus community? I think that, um, again, I think for anyone who's specifically um, interested in this from the lens of the LGBTQ2S plus community, um, I think the first thing I'd advise is whatever you think you know about kind of oppression within the community, and that and this goes to myself too because I'm you know I'm learning, is um, to step back and ask yourself why you think you know that, and then um, seek out some of the folks who may have different opinions and you or a different lens, and um, have the and have conversations with them. Um, it's really important for what we're having here too um and that because uh, we need like this is a time it is a time of great discomfort and i think we're seeing that in a lot of a large scale fact too but within the community which i think if we can get beyond ourselves enough um to actually admit that we don't know everything um admit that um yeah, you know, um, certain folks in the community have had a lot more access and acceptance for a lot longer time. And, um, and that doesn't mean we're good or bad people. It just means that it is time to recognize that we may have, you know, been, you know, um, inadvertently um, excluding others and that too. Um, and look at how we're going to change. I think that's how we're going to move forward. And this is the time to do it. And um, everything that's happened, you know, globally, nationally provincially across south of the border in the last years has taught us how easy how fragile our civility is <laughs> and how easily people are thrown into um into kind of this combative state um where they will where those of us um who are being held down will tear each other apart at mm -hmm. the beginning of 
those who continue to hold power and um and that too and just you know and really be constantly aware constantly aware of where your power lies and don't feel guilty about it but share it yeah some self-awareness around power i think is the the foundational piece because you can't use it well if you're not Mm -hmm. aware of how it shows up and your perspective on it so glennis thank you so much for spending an hour with me i appreciate it greatly and i'll be sure to put some links to the work that you're doing in the show notes Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Glynis Lieb. Next week, we dig into personal power a little bit more uh, from a different perspective with my friend and colleague, Josh Clark. He's a designer and a maker and a facilitator of change in the world. And we have a really great conversation about design thinking and design doing and how we can take some of these concepts and apply them in our organizations, with our teams and in our life. And a reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really does help us have a bigger impact in the world. And if you want to check out www.jeffcoulard.com, that's J-E-F-F-C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D.com, you can find blog posts and articles on all of these topics, as well as a way to contact me if you're interested in right use of power training or development for your organization. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.